Well, family, I'd like to begin this morning with a little informal poll, if I could. I'd like you to raise your hand if you have ever permanently dropped, ruined, smashed, or lost your mobile phone. Yes, raise your hand if you've ever permanently lost, smashed, dropped, ruined your cell phone. Keep your hands raised. Now take a look around here this morning, friends. Ah, yes, you will see. This is not what we would often call the freak accident. Oh no, it happens to us all the time. I've heard many, many stories of how people have lost and dropped and ruined their cell phones over the years. I've heard of people who have accidentally dropped their cell phones into the toilet. I've heard stories about people who put their cell phone on top the roof of their vehicle and then drove away. A couple years ago, I remember my dad was working in the heating and air conditioning trade right up to his retirement. And just a few weeks before he retired, my dad got out of his work truck. His phone slipped out of his pocket. It bounced off the asphalt and went right into a sewer drain. You know, if we took a microphone and passed it around this morning, we would hear very uh, zany stories, wouldn't we, about the various ways that you and I have lost or dropped or destroyed our mobile phones. The last time I ruined a mobile phone was back in 2015. I happened to jump into a hotel pool with all of my clothes on. I think some of you may have heard the story. My parents happened to be in town one weekend, and uh, they were staying over at the Fairfield Inn in, in West Hazleton. This hotel has a very nice indoor pool, and my parents were staying there and said, why don't you bring the kids over, and we'll swim and enjoy the pool, and then we'll all get dressed, and then we'll go off and have a nice dinner. Well, we had a great swimming time, and everyone enjoyed that, and then when the swimming time concluded, we all started to take turns uh, using the, the nearby restroom that was provided, so we were changing our clothes and getting ready to go eat. Well, my son Carter was only two years old at the time, and at the time, uh, he had already been dressed, even Hadley had been dressed, and so I'm holding my little girl Hadley. She was just maybe one year old at the time, and I'm holding Carter's hand, and we're starting to walk towards the door. Everyone had been dressed, and we're actually on our way. And as I'm walking around the pool, Heather asked me a question. And I turned around so that I could hear her better. Well, when I turned around, Carter pulled away from my hand. And that is when he somehow fell into the shallow end of the pool. Well, I turned back around and instantly, a moment later, my, my son Seth starts shouting, Dad, 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 and he's pointing because he can't get the words to come out. And sure enough, I look and there's Carter on the bottom of the pool. So I've got Hadley in my arms and I jump into the pool with all of my clothes on and I rescue this poor little boy from drowning. Thankfully, he had only been under the water, maybe a full second or two at the most, but I was able to rescue him. It was interesting as I got back out and stood there totally drenched in all my clothes. There on the side of the pool, of course, was the little life preserver ring. And I just thought it was curious that it was there, but it certainly didn't help me with a little boy who was there on the bottom of the pool. I just thank God. Yeah, I did lose my mobile phone that day. My cell phone was only a few months old when that happened. But yes, I lost the cell phone, but I'm thankful that my little boy's life had been preserved. Friends, we're going to open God's Word this morning to the book of Exodus. And as I mentioned, we're going to launch a brand new eight-week series today on the life and times of Moses that I've entitled, Moses, Journeys of a Reluctant Leader. 
Family, I'm very excited about all the things that you and I are going to learn and interact with in these coming weeks. We're going to be studying some amazing truth, truth about God, truth about Moses, and especially some truth about ourselves. Family, as we open this series today in Exodus 2, just like my little boy's life was preserved from a watery death, you and I today are going to see how something very similar happened with Moses. So we're going to come this morning, friends, to Exodus chapter 2. And how does the story of Moses begin? How does the story of Moses begin to unfold? And what encouraging truths can we learn from this event for our Christian lives in the present? Well, family, as we step through this dramatic narrative of the very early beginnings of Moses, I want to show you this truth this morning. Number one, a daring act of faith. A daring act of faith. Would you look with me at Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 1? Scripture says, And a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Now friends, just before we start to dig into the, the details of Moses' parents here and how they took this daring act of faith, let's take just a moment or two here at the very beginning and let's set the scene with some very appropriate context. Context. When the book of Exodus opens, we learn that the Israelite people have been living in Egypt for hundreds and hundreds of years. The Israelites had come to be in Egypt through the influence of Joseph. Joseph, many years earlier, had come to Egypt from the land of Canaan. And by God's direction, Joseph rose in the ranks to become the very prime minister of Egypt. And then what happened? A famine took place up in the north. A famine unfolded in the land of Canaan. A terrible famine. And as a result, the family of Joseph all comes down to Egypt, where they come under Joseph's care. Well, in the very opening verses of the book of Exodus, we learn that Joseph died and also another person died. That was the Egyptian Pharaoh who had treated Joseph with such blessing. So the Israelite people are having a new chapter, so to speak, begin to unfold. The Israelite people continue to grow in size and strength and population. They're growing larger and larger with each passing generation. But now there's new Egyptian leadership, new management, so to speak, in Egypt. And that new Egyptian leadership begins to get worried, very worried about all of these hundreds of thousands of Hebrews. They are worried that perhaps all of these Hebrews might join with Egypt's enemies and maybe lead to the overthrow of Egypt. So in a very, very fiendish move, the Pharaoh of Egypt implements this plan to subjugate these Hebrews as slaves. He turns them into forced labor. And this is a very simple plan. It's not hard to understand. If you force 
a people group into hard labor, if you force a whole people group into, into uh, physical labor, oppression, they are not going to thrive as a people group. No, chances are they're going to decline. And so this was plan A. Let's make all of these Hebrews our slaves. Let's put them to forced work. Let's physically oppress them so that they will decline in population. Well, plan A didn't exactly work. Scripture says that in spite of the labor camps, in spite of the slavery, Scripture says that the Israelites were still thriving. They were still having babies. They were still growing in population. So plan B is implemented. The Pharaoh commands all the Hebrew midwives to do some sex selection killings. That when the Israelite women give birth, the boys are to be killed, but the daughters are to be left alive. And so this is plan B. It's a, it's a sex selection killing. Well, plan B also turns out to be a failure because Scripture says that these Hebrew midwives had a conscience. And they refused to commit those kinds of murders. Well, finally then, the Pharaoh turns to plan C, where he calls on all the people, all the people of Egypt to get involved in this. All the people of Egypt are to participate in this and enforce this new law. And that is that any time a boy is born to a Hebrew family, that little baby Hebrew boy is to be tossed into the Nile River. And of course, so family, this is the dark cloud into which Moses enters the world. This is the scene into which Moses is born. It is a dark cloud hovering over the Hebrew people. It is a cloud of extermination. It is a cloud of genocide. Well, look at verses 1 and 2. Moses is born to a husband and wife from the house of Levi. In chapter 6, later on, we learn their names. The father's name is Amram, and the mother's name is Jochebed. And this Hebrew couple already has two other children. They have a daughter whose name is Miriam, and they have a son whose name is Aaron. And so now this third child is born to their family. He's a, he's a little baby boy, but oh no, now the Egyptian law has been passed that says that this little Hebrew boy is to be cast into the river. Well, of course, these loving parents are not willing to do that to their little precious boy. They can see he's so helpless, he's so innocent. They're unwilling to do that. They're not going to murder their own child. So they do what any parent would have done in that situation. They hide him as best they can. They hid their baby from sight. They did everything they could to muffle his screams and quiet his cries. But finally, Scripture says, after three months, something has to be done. And it's amazing what happens. Look at verses 3 and 4. Scripture says that Jochebed, the mom, she goes down to the river where she harvests a whole bunch of bulrushes, a whole bunch of this vegetation along the river, and she makes this one-of-a-kind, this little floating bassinet. She weaves it into the right shape, and then she coats it with tar and pitch so that it would be waterproof, so that it would float. And you all remember that famous story in the Old Testament. You all know the story about Noah's Ark, where a giant ark was made to save eight people. Well, here we find a mini ark designed to save just one little baby boy. So Jochebed and Amram, they have this plan in mind. And I really think it's both of them involved. I think both of them had a part in this plan. 
Rather than kill their little baby boy, they decide to implement this plan. They put him in the little floating basket and they set him in the Nile River right among the cattails and the reeds and they are just praying and they are hoping that somehow someone will find their precious boy, take pity on him, and decide to rescue him. Now family, if you think about this, there's actually a little bit of irony here. There's a little irony here if you think about it. The Egyptian law mandated Hebrew boys must go into the river. Well, in one sense, that is what Jochebed did. She made a little raft and she put her boy in the river. Family, before we go any further, let's take a moment here. Let's ponder a very, very important application for our own Christian lives. Let's think about some significance for ourselves here, believers. How many times have you and I, we have found ourselves in a very challenging predicament? Maybe it's a difficult family situation. Maybe it's a work scenario. Maybe it's a financial hardship. And whatever the situation, it was a challenge. It was difficult. It was, it was an adversity. And we found our backs up against the wall. We were wondering, what in the world were we going to do? You know what? That's exactly where Moses' parents were. That's where Amram was. That's where Jochebed was. They didn't know. They didn't know if putting their little boy in the floating basket and putting him in the bulrushes along the Nile River, they had no idea if this would save their little boy's life. But they, but they did know this. They knew that it was wrong to commit murder. They knew it would be wrong to murder him. And so they decided to take a step of faith here, didn't they? They took a step of faith. They decided that they would do what was right to the best of their ability. They would do what they knew to be right. They knew what was honoring to God the best that they could do. And they sought to leave the outcome in the hands of God. Christian friends, I'd remind you of some of the truth that you already know from the Old Testament. Hadn't God already made a solemn promise to Father Abraham that Abraham would be the father of a great nation? Didn't God make such a promise? Well, even though the circumstances had now made a very dramatic turn, and now that God's people were down in Egypt, now genocide was threatening them, extermination was threatening them, wasn't God still in charge? Wouldn't it be safe to say that God's sovereignty was still ruling and reigning even over this difficult situation? Of course. Here were two faithful Hebrew parents. They could not control the circumstances. But what they could control was their decision to persevere in their faith and to do right, to do what they knew to be right, to please God with what they could do with their lives. Christian friends, that's a great reminder for you and I this morning. When the skies start to get dark, when the adversities come, when the challenges rise and our backs are up against the wall, we have to remember God hasn't forsaken us. God is still with us. God is not going to go back on His promises. Look in your notes. I gave you Psalm 32.8 where the Lord says, I will instruct you. I will teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye, with my eye upon you. Friend, I want to remind you today, Christian, God loves you. God loves you. He knows you by name. He knows who you are. He knows what those circumstances are. He's in charge 
of those adverse, challenging situations, no matter how severe they might be, no matter how threatening they may feel to you, even still, He is still in charge of your life in those situations. Listen, the final results, the final results are always up to a sovereign God. But in those difficult times, your job and my job is to persevere with believing, obedient faith. Now let's press on. Let's see a second thing that happens in this great narrative. Number two, we see a divinely orchestrated rescue. A divinely orchestrated rescue. We see it in verses 5 and 6. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Now, Christian friends, it was that fictional character, Hannibal Smith, from that legendary TV show in the 1980s, The A-Team. It was Hannibal Smith, that legendary character on TV, who used to say this, I love it when a plan comes together. I think some of you have probably heard that famous saying in the realm of leadership, failing to plan is planning to fail. Friends, I agree with so many good Bible scholars who say that what is transpiring here in these early verses of Exodus 2 is a plan. There is a plan that's working here, a real plan that's been put into, into motion by Moses' parents, Jochebed and Amram. It was their plan to make this floating little bedbasket out of vegetation and pitch. It was their plan to put this baby at the very section of the Nile River that they knew was the section where the royal family would often come and do their bathing. It was also their plan to have their little girl, their daughter, Miriam, sitting there on the bank of the Nile River at such a distance so that she could see what was going on and perhaps even say something to someone should such a kind-hearted person discover the baby and then tell them what to do. Family, I gave you a great insight in your bulletin notes this morning, in your sermon notes, a great quote from Chuck Swindoll, who wrote this, quote, I am confident that this wise mother had identified certain habits of Pharaoh's daughter. She knew that in a certain place at a certain time, the princess came to the river to bathe. She also reasoned that if she placed the basket in just the right spot at just the right time, the princess and her attendants would see it or at least hear the baby crying. I think Chuck's right. I think that's a very wise statement. Family Jochebed and Amram, Moses' father and mother, they had a plan they had a plan, and they implemented that plan, and it took a lot of daring faith to do so. But friends, I want you to think with me for just a moment. How many various things had to line up with perfect precision to get this result that we read about? Think about that, friends. What if she made a, a bad basket? What if it sprung a leak? What if it sank? 
What if the winds that day were blowing too strong and pushed the little basket out into the river's current and away it went? What if the basket was too camouflaged and no one could see it? What if a hungry Nile crocodile tipped the basket over and ate that little baby for a snack? What if the basket was discovered by an angry Egyptian soldier who would instantly drown that baby? Friends, if we went around the room today, you and I could come up with a hundred, a hundred different negative possibilities that could have stopped this thing from unfolding. But yet, isn't it amazing? The Lord God, the sovereign God, the providential God intervenes in such a way with His providence that the one positive scenario comes to pass just as God wanted it. Look at verses 5 and following. Scripture says the Pharaoh's daughter comes down to the river. There she is coming down to do her bathing and she sees that floating basket. And she probably said what you would have said. What in the world is that? What is that thing? So she dispatches one of her maidens, one of her servants, to go get this basket. And what in the world? Open this thing up and who would ever believe this? Who's going to believe this story tonight? That inside this floating basket on the Nile River is a living, breathing, this beautiful, healthy baby boy. Now, friends, I know many of you are familiar with this story because you've read through the Old Testament. But for people who've never been introduced to this story... For people who don't know the life narrative of Moses, any first-time reader would come to this point and instantly feel anxiety. The first-time reader would read this and instantly feel pins and needles because they begin to wonder, what will this princess do? Will she take pity on this baby? Will she get angry and drown him right there? Or will she put him back in the basket and float him on down the river? Will she embrace and obey her father's edict? Will she do her loyal duty? Will she do her civic obedience to the laws of Egypt? Well, without a doubt, friends, verse 6, there's an important word there. You better underline it. It's the word compassion. Compassion. This Egyptian princess takes compassion on this little helpless Hebrew boy. She knew the boy was a Hebrew. She knew what the law stated. But in that moment, I really think her feminine instincts kicked in. In that moment, I think her feminine instincts were a hundred times stronger than what she knew to be the official laws of the land. And so at least for the moment, this little boy had been rescued he was rescued alive in the most unlikely of circumstances. And how did it happen? It all happened because of God's providential intervention. But listen, let's not make an application just yet. Let me show you one more thing that happens next in the story. This is number three if you're taking some notes. Let's talk about a double blessing. A double blessing. Look at verse 7. Then his sister, that's Miriam, then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, 
and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Christian friends, after bringing five boys into this world, I'm sure you can imagine what a life-changing event it was for me when my daughter Hadley was born in 2014. I had been raising boys for almost 20 years when the Lord sent this little girl into my life. And let me tell you, friends, having a daughter is something very special because God created females to be the masters of messaging. With my boys, I'll be out in the garage and maybe I'm working on a project and I'll grab one of my sons and I'll say, hey, go in and ask mom what she wants to do for dinner. Go ask mom if she wants to do pizzas for dinner. And I'll go back to my work and maybe I'll check my watch. Oh man, it's 45 minutes later. And I walk back in and there's the boy and he's sitting on a couch and I say, hey, what did mom say about the pizza? And he says, oh, I forgot to ask her. Let me tell you what, though, not Hadley, not my daughter Hadley. Let me tell you, this little girl, she already has her master's degree in communication. I mean, she will come and tell me every little detail of what her brothers are doing. She will tell me in great detail exactly what they're doing or what they're not doing. So and so is not doing what mom said. You know, it's amazing. I can even give that little girl instruction. I can give her an instruction to go tell her mom something, it can have four parts. It can have four or five parts in this message. And she can take that message to her mom and it gets there every time with no mistakes. Nothing's ever left out. It's amazing what those daughters can do. Now friends, I tell you that story to help you see why Moses' mother, Jochebed, put so much reliance in little Miriam. Miriam. The daughter is sitting there watching all this, sitting on the riverbank of the Nile. Think about it. If the parents had been there, if the parents had been there kind of watching around and see what was going on, oh, that, that would have been bad, right? There would have been suspicion. There would have been questions raised. But no one would think anything out of the ordinary about a little girl sitting there twiddling her hands in the, in the dirt alongside the river. Personally, knowing that girls are masters of communication, I have no doubt that little Miriam had gotten some coaching from mom. Some coaching from mom about exactly what to say should someone find that little baby floating in the basket. And Miriam had been coached on exactly what to say to that person. Look at verse 7. Look at it. Look what happens. The princess shows up. She has compassion on this little boy who starts crying. And within moments, here comes Miriam. Comes up to the princess with this, oh, it seems so casual, doesn't it? Did you want me to go find someone who could help nurse that baby for you? So casual. And yet, exactly as God orchestrated it. God's already made the princess's heart to be tender. God has already worked to bring compassion out of this woman's heart. What does the Egyptian princess say? She says, yes, go ahead. Go, go find a Hebrew woman who can nurse this baby for me. And so what happens? Isn't this amazing? Moses' own mother is brought in and she is hired. She gets on a royal stipend to nurse this baby and to see that he is kept in good health. 
Friend, could you just imagine that? Let that sink in for a second. Getting paid out of the royal treasury to nurse your own baby. Well, I can tell you what, I know a lot of moms right here in this room who, this morning who'd say, I wish that would have happened to me. All I got was 12 weeks and then I had to go back to work. Well, it really would have, it really would have been nice to be paid some big lump sum to, to stay home and, and raise my baby for a really long time. Family, here was Moses' own mother. Look at this. And by God's direction, she receives a double blessing. A double blessing. Not only was her little boy's life spared, not only was that little baby rescued off the, off the River Nile, now she is going to be paid a salary by the most powerful man in the nation to raise her own child. She's going to get paid a salary to raise him on behalf of the royal family. Now, Christians, listen, this is a narrative here we're reading. This took place approximately 1,500 years before the times of Jesus. I mean, we're going way back in time here. But what kind of significance can we take away from this for our lives in the present? Well, listen, Christians, before we forget, the Bible says that all of these historical narratives have been preserved for us down through the ages so that we can read them, so that we can learn from them, and especially so that we can benefit from them. You know, there's benefit that God has in mind for you and me as we study these ancient narratives. Look in your notes. I gave you Romans 15.4. Scripture says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. 1 Corinthians 10.11 says likewise, Now these things happened to them as an example they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Christians, here's what I'm saying. When you and I make a deep study of Moses, when we study out all the various things that occurred in his life journey, listen to me, not only are we learning about Moses, we are also learning about the Lord God. Yes, Moses is the main character of our study, he's the main subject. But we cannot forget that standing over and above Moses is Almighty God in the way that the Lord is personally orchestrating all of these things to accomplish His plans. And what ultimately will be the soon release of His people from slavery out of Egypt. Friends, there's an application for us here. It's an application for you and me on the providence of God. The providence of God. The sovereign ability of God to intervene into this world and to orchestrate various circumstances and things that happen. And He orchestrates those things in order to align them exactly the way He wants to align them so that His perfect plans can be accomplished Shame on us Christians, we get so fretful. We get so filled with anxiety. We lay awake at night and we're so worried about this situation and that situation. Sometimes we're just frozen with fear and we, we, bar we barely make it through our days and we can hardly function sometimes because we're so fearful about what might happen, about the way life is unfolding. Oh friends, have we, have we forgotten? Have we forgotten that our Almighty God is the God of providence? He's a powerful God. He knows how to manipulate situations. He knows how to orchestrate things. 
He can move circumstances. He can, he can mold events and shape them so that His will is accomplished. Look in your notes. I gave you Proverbs 16.9. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 19.21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that stands. Psalm 33.11 I like too. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. Christian friends, have you forgotten about the God that you serve? This God that you serve, this is the God who stood there. And the disciples looked at even the Lord Jesus and they said to themselves, Who is this guy? Who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? Friend, that's your Lord. He moves the winds and the waves. And God can orchestrate all kinds of things, circumstances and situations. God's in control of all those things. He's the same Lord who orchestrates the events of your life. Friend, God is in charge, the God of providence. He knows what he's doing. You can trust him. So stop giving in to the anxiety. Stop being gripped by the fear. Stop laying awake night after night so worried. Friend, take it to the Lord. Take it to the God of providence and leave it there. And then you can rest. You can rest in his wise and good providence. Now, let me show you one final part to this first part of our story. We don't want to miss this. In verses 10 and 11, we see a distinct nobility. If you're taking notes, this is number four, a distinct nobility. Verse 10, Scripture says, And the child, this is Moses, and the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, Because I drew him out of the water. Now, friends, down through the years, there's been a lot of stories, a lot of Hollywood films that have been made portraying the life of Moses. I think many of you are probably familiar. Maybe the most famous one of all time is the Ten Commandments that starred Charlton Heston. But even as recently as 2014, they're still making movies about the life of Moses in 2014. Christian Bale was the starring actor in that film, Gods and Kings. Now listen, there's so much in the story of Moses that's given to us in God's Word. The Hollywood producers have so much material to draw from. But unfortunately, when they try to get back to Moses' early years, well, that's when they start kicking into, let's just call it creative mode. Creative mode. Because Scripture really just doesn't tell us very much about the early childhood, the early life of Moses. All we can really say is what verse 10 says. Look at it. While he was still in the very early years, his infancy, maybe up into just toddlerhood, Moses did grow up under the influence of his biological mother and his biological father. But then when the right time was determined, Moses was taken back to the palace, back to the grounds where his legal mother stepped in. The Pharaoh's daughter, she adopted Moses as her legal son, and she was the one who gave him that name Moses, which has as its meaning drawn out, drawn out. And of course, picturing the way he was drawn out of the Nile River. Now, we can't say for sure what Moses' early upbringing is, was like. We can't say it for certain, but we can speculate a little. 
And I think that's okay. I don't think it's a bridge too far to say that Moses probably received the same kind of royal education that all the other boys in the royal household had received. Moses probably was taught how to read. He probably received a training in writing, mathematics, language, horsemanship, weapons training. He probably had a very well-rounded, very serious education. In fact, in his study Bible, Dr. John MacArthur writes that during the 18th century dynasty, two of the favorite activities in ancient Egypt amongst the royal class was horseback riding and archery. And I would imagine that Moses was taught how to do both of those things. He was probably an expert in horsemanship. He probably was a fantastic shot with a bow and arrow. Later in the New Testament, Acts chapter 7 says this, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was mighty in his words and deeds. Friends, what I'm saying is, is that Moses had every privilege held out to him. Every privilege, every uh, special blessing that would go to all the members of the royal household, Moses received that he had this distinct nobility. But Christian, don't stop there. See the bigger picture of what God was doing here. Think about this. Don't you dare miss this. Here was the Egyptian pharaoh whose idea was to slowly exterminate the Hebrew population. His plan was kill the boys, save the girls. If you do that for too long, you've got no population left. So Pharaoh's plan was to exterminate the males. That way the Hebrews would be weakened. They would then be no threat to Egypt. But look at what God did. In God's providence, Moses was not only rescued by Pharaoh's own daughter, Moses would be fed and clothed and housed and educated and trained in Pharaoh's own royal household where Moses would receive every royal privilege. Pharaoh wanted the Hebrews weakened. He wanted them enslaved. And yet, God was making it happen that Pharaoh's own money was paying to raise up the Hebrews' strongest leader. The very one who would lead the Hebrews to freedom. Friend, isn't that amazing? That's what God was doing. One Bible scholar said it like this, Pharaoh was urging the extermination of the Israelites while God was preparing their emancipator. I love that. Believers, won't you take this joyful application with you today? Sinful people will often rise up in life and they will seek to hurt you. They will get in the way of you. They do things to you that will be mean, hurtful. They mean it for evil. They mean to cause you pain. They want to cause you hurt. They want to stick it to you. But God has His ways of getting in there and often turning it around by His power for His good and for your good. Family, just think of how the Old Testament overflows with these kinds of narratives. Stories about Joseph, stories about Moses, stories of Esther. Yes, even Jesus Himself. Sinful people trying to do evil, and yet God overturns those plans and God brings good things to pass instead. Christian, listen, 
Don't let the discouraging challenges of your current situation break your spirit. Don't let the adversities that you're going through right now rob you of the joy you have in Jesus. Someday, Christian, you're going to look back over your life. And you're going to look back over everything that unfolded. And you're going to say, wow, it wasn't craziness after all. It wasn't chaos. It wasn't crisis. It wasn't calamity after all. No, it was exactly what the Lord was doing in my life to bring me precisely where He wanted me to be by His wise providence. Christian, that ought to encourage you today. Isn't that what Romans 8.28 is all about? That God is working all things for your good? Well, believers, as we depart this place today, as we take these opening verses of Exodus with us, let me just challenge you with a couple of practical action steps in light of what you've heard. Friend, in view of God's promises, make it your goal this week, Christian, to embrace more faith and less fear. Christian, in view of God's providence, make it your aim this week to do more resting and less stressing. And finally, in view of God's power, I would encourage you to practice more praying and less manipulating. You know, family people associate the life of Moses with so many remarkable experiences. Moses was there for the receiving of the Ten Commandments. Moses was there to lead the Israelites across the Red Sea. But today we've seen, today we've seen that even from the very beginning, Moses' life was preserved and it was guided by the extraordinary involvement of God's hand. Oh, Christian, Christian, it is that very same extraordinary hand that preserves and guides you. Thanks for listening. This Preaching for a Change broadcast has been brought to you by the Grace Baptist Church of Hazleton, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at mygracebaptist.church. If you enjoyed this broadcast, then share it with a friend on your favorite social media network. And be sure to join us next time for more enlightening and encouraging biblical exposition here on Preaching for a Change.